Welcome to Worldwide Bible Class. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. Thank you for joining me. Uh, let's pray. Oh, Lord, bless the hearing and believing, trusting in your word by your spirit through Christ our Lord. Amen. We are looking at the life of Jacob with Martin Luther and studying today. Uh, we're going to start in Genesis 31, verse 21, which is Laban. Okay, boom, he's leaving. It's 20 years now serving Laban. Now Jacob's, and he's been slaving this whole time. Finally, Jacob thinks, I should leave. The Lord says, you should leave. His wife says, you should leave. So out they go. And he's he's got all the stuff. Remember, Rachel's taken the household idols, and we've had a long discussion about that. This is where Luther says, look, we have to, we need theologians because there's oftentimes when the commandments compete with one another. This came up this last week where the Lord says, it's Holy Tuesday, in the temple, last it's the last public teaching day of Jesus, and the, they're trying to trick him. They and they say, "Who should you pay taxes?" And that's that sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Like if Jesus says, "Yeah, pay taxes," then everyone who was trying to rebel against thought the Messiah would lead the rebellion against the Rome against Roman Empire would be uh, against him. If he says, "Don't pay taxes," then they could have Pilate arrest him. So it's a it's when that it's when you have these competing loyalties that things get very tricky. Luther says that's why we need theology. Of course, Jesus answers beautifully: "Give to God what's God's, give to Caesar's what's Caesar's." What happens when God and Caesar are demanding the thing, same thing? Then you give to God what's God's, and you endure the consequences from Caesar. So this is this. But how how do you know that when you have these competing? When you have these competing competing claims on yourself, and that's the wisdom that that we have to learn also from Rachel, who says this gold idol it belongs to me, not you, and that even though it's called theft, it's it's a it's actually a good work, but this is this is care is needed, and and we're underlining that fact that care is needed. In fact. Luther says we need theology to teach us this because this is just a it's a fact in this life that there will be dual claims made on our time, our attention or our whatever and they're conflicting uh what's the other very famous example is when the apostles are brought into the Sanhedrin and they beat them for preaching the name of Jesus and they leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name but they said to the Sanhedrin we must obey God rather than man so there will be times when God and man both lay claim on us and and we hand ourselves to God and not to men. But there is a way that that can go wrong. And Luther last week listed all these ways, especially with the Anabaptists, with the Pope. They they do it wrong. The Pope does it wrong by laying claim on men. He he claims more authority than he's given by God. The Anabaptists lay, uh, um, do this wrong by saying that there's no honoring of father and mother. And so this, it can go wrong in both directions. So we got to be careful. Um, so, so that's where we were. So now we are at Genesis thirty-one twenty-one. Let's take a. Oh, I forgot about this. Uh, I wanted to announce this at the uh, very beginning. So Saturday in a couple of weeks, November fourth, there's the Biblical Worldview Conference. It's in at St. Timothy Evangelical Lutheran Church, Lombard, Illinois. So it's an ELS event, Evangelical Lutheran Synod. Uh, God bless those guys over there. Uh, John Bombaros will be there. Nelson will be there. Combe, I don't know. Jennifer Combe, who will be there, but get to meet her. And I'll be there. Theology of Pronouns. Uh, again, it's Saturday, November 4th. 
2023. If you're watching this video way, way later, you missed it. So uh, you can grab that. That'll be great. Okay. Uh, let's see. New share. I want to go to this. All right. You guys should see now the, the text. You got it? So here we are. Genesis 31, 21. He, uh, Jacob, fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the river and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Um, let me, in fact, before we get too deep into it, let's just look at the map. So hopefully you can see this map. Here is, the, down here, let me get my little pointy thing here. So here's the, here's the zoomed in map um, uh, that you see Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Bethel. Here's where Jacob had, the the dream of the ladder uh here at bethel uh he traveled all the way over here and then here if you zoom way out way out you see his journey up to Paddan aram and that's where he was for 20 years working and building his family so now he's going to leave and he's going to travel all the way down all the way back down this way and and it's here that Laban overtakes him at Mizpah. In other words, here Jacob is going to travel all this way, and Laban is going to is going to chase after him all this way. It's an incredible so that Laban is going to follow him all the way down, all the way down the sea, all the way through Damascus, all the way through Ramoth Gilead, all the way to, to right here is where he's going to confront him. That is a long ways. Laban is not. Laban is not just like, well, I'll chase him for a few, few miles, and if I give, if I don't find him, then I'm going to give up. No, he goes all the way. He goes all the way down here to Mizpah, past the Sea of Galilee. See, here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's the Mount Hermon. Is you know right here. He's all the way past down this King's Highway, all the way down there to Mizpah to track him down. This is a, this is a vehement uh, man, Laban. And his vehemence is in his anger here, so we're gonna we're gonna see this in the text. So, uh, so it should be carefully noted that Holy Scripture calls the actions of Jacob by names uh, of the greatest crimes and vices. We're gonna notice with interest. Uh, I, by the way, just as a side note, see that that Zoom has given me a smart pen. And I was goofing around with it earlier to see what it would do. I don't know if it's going to be helpful or not, but it's going to. It's, this is me having. So it, it's going to make my lines straight like this. And see, that's kind of cool, huh? So we'll see how that goes. Okay. Um, so it should be carefully noted that Holy Scripture calls all the actions of Jacob by names of the greatest crimes and vices. It previously was stated that Jacob stole the heart of Laban, the Syrian. Here it says he fled with his father in law's without his father-in-law's knowledge and contrary to his will, taking along his substance and disappointing every expectation about perpetual servitude, which was the hope of Laban that, that Jacob would be all the time his servant. And here he's not. But here, the point that Luther's making is that the language of the scripture also for Rachel, that she stole the idols, that she took these things, that there it's you, the, the words that are used are are criminal words. It's it's a point. It's saying that they're it's calling what they've done. Uh, 
it's calling what they've done criminal and sinful. All these acts are referred to with terminology of crimes. Whoops, that didn't do it right. Of crimes, as Laban a little later will enlarge on them in rhetorical fashion. Luther's going to say Jesus does the same thing. For example, when he speaks of hatred of one's own mother and father, which is the name of an offense, even though this is the highest virtue. To hate one's mother and father is, in fact, the highest form of love. So this act is not really a theft, this act of Jacob that's happening up there. is not really a theft. But Holy Scripture speaks in the manner of men who habitually make such an inference about the acts of this kind. In the ears of Laban, it is theft and des uh, uh, desertion. But by divine law, it's not. Clear all drawings, go to the pointer, move the page up. I got to... This used to... Back in the old days, it wasn't so many options here. Uh, divine law and justice, it's regarded as reward and wages due by virtue of the highest law. So also, he who hates a father and mother for Christ's sake does not hate them, but loves them. This is the command, in fact, to love, but it's putting things in order. As he who denies himself and loses his own life finds it. Now, this idea of, of loving your parents by hating them, this is putting things in the proper order, that we love God above all things, and actually our love for God is our love for our neighbor, and it's through the love of God that we do, in fact, love those around us. We fear and love God first, and that shows up in love for our neighbor. And here's the point. If I put father and mother ahead of God, I'm not actually loving them. But when I put God ahead of father and mother, then God tells me, honor your father and your mother. So I, it gets there, but it gets there through God. That's the point. It all it goes through God. Same with our life. It gets to us through God. We don't, we don't get life by pursuing life, which brings me to what I think I'm now calling the boomerang paradox. Because if you have a cool name for stuff like that, then you can remember it. But I was thinking about this, especially, well, when I was in Australia before, but also... We we're talking about the boomerang problem. But yesterday I was listening to a couple of lectures and thinking about the boomerang paradox. And here's the boomerang paradox. A boomerang doesn't fly straight. That means, well, you know, the old, then now remember there's different kind of boomerangs and all this sort of stuff. So those of you in Australia are going to be correcting me on the different kinds of boomerangs. And like a kangaroo boomerang would actually fly straight versus a like bird boomerang flies crooked. Okay, so just go with me on this. The, a boomerang doesn't fly straight, which means that if I want to make sure I miss something, I throw the boomerang right at it. So if you're standing right in front of me and I've got a boomerang, I mean, back up a little bit, and I throw the boomerang at you, I am going to miss you if I aim at you. The only way to hit the target is by aiming for something different. Now, here's the boomerang paradox, is that we forget that you're gonna, if you aim at it, you're going to miss it. This should have been, I mean, the boomerang paradox is really the, the doctrine of Ecclesiastes. When Solomon pursued happiness, he missed it. When he pursued fulfillment, he missed it. When he pursued the good life, he missed it. When we pursue uh, whatever it is that we think that we want, if we go straight for it, if we aim straight at it, 
it not only do we miss it, but it is a guarantee that we miss it. This is when Jesus says, look, if you want to gain your life, you have to lose it. You have to, you can't try to get life by getting, no, you can't get life by trying to get life, meaning happiness, whatever. You can't, it's the boomerang paradox. You have to aim at something different. And Jesus says, it's like this, you aim at me, <clears throat> you aim away from life and toward me and you get life. <clears throat> I was thinking about this because, oh yeah. I was I was hearing someone discussing uh, preaching yesterday, and they were talking about how we have to have passion in our preaching. Okay, fine, but but the, this is again the boomerang paradox. If I'm trying to ha to be a passionate preacher, then I will not be a passionate preacher. I will be a preacher trying to have passion. That's a very big difference. It's the same problem with what what all the kids talk about these days authenticity like if i'm trying to be authentic it guarantees inauthenticity because the it's the try the, it's what the uh my kids when they <clears throat> when someone beats them at a video game they call them a try hard which it seems like that's not an insult like well he's trying he's a try hard but that's the that's the problem of the of like the authentic it's the trying to be authentic that in fact makes it not authentic it's the very fact that you're aiming for the thing. It undoes the thing. that So you're not going to get it. You guys got the point. So that so that if you want to love your father and mother, you don't aim at mom and dad. You aim at God, and he says, honor your father and your mother. You turn away from your parents towards God, who then turns you back towards them. Does that? So that's the boomerang paradox. You heard it here first. You guys have to tell me if you think it makes sense and what it applies to. Because I think in our own, in our secular context, and this is very important when there's no, there's nothing, there's nothing beyond the things that we're aiming for. Like there's no other option. People are like, well, I want to have a life of purpose and meaning and, uh, and fulfillment. I want to have a fulfilled, meaningful life. Who doesn't? Right. The problem is you, if you pursue a purposeful and meaningful life, not only will you not reach it, but you guarantee not reaching it. You are guaranteed. The boomerang principle means that you are the boomerang paradox. I just changed it to the boomerang principle. I wonder what's better. What do you guys like more? Boomerang principle or boomerang paradox? You. It, the, the point is that not only are you going to miss it, but you are for sure going to miss it. So we've got all these people wandering around trying to be happy by trying to be happy. And you just can't get there from here. Okay. Here we go. Back to the page. <clears throat> uh, he who hates his life for my sake, Jesus says. He who hates father and mother for Christ's sake. Oh, you guys like paradox. Let's see. Paradox, paradox, paradox. It does not sound so absolute. The boomerang paradox. Okay. I'll stick with boomerang paradox. Though. It's the principle of the boomerang paradox. Well, Chris says, reminds me of a passage in 
Mechens, Christianity and Liberalism, fantastic book. How easily we turn, seek ye first the kingdom and all this will be added to you into, if you want all that to be added to you, seek the kingdom. Difference between following God who blesses us and following God so he'll give us the stuff we want. I'm seeing a... Uh, I'm seeing a... Uh, I think we're going to go with paradox here. That Okay, perfect. We'll do it. All right. Uh... Tech, terminology being invented right here in live time in worldwide Bible class. So uh, Michelle says, so that could apply to trying to love God more, actually resulting in turning in, uh, resulting into turning in on ourselves. Mm, that's, I think that's, I, 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 and I think that's a big part of it, right? Is that the love of God is a, is an un, unfurling love in the sense that we are naturally curved in on ourselves. We're naturally self-interested. Uh, we're we're kind of naturally, uh, we're kind of, we're groaning people. Remember the three groans? We have the belly groan and the, and the heart groan, the conscience groan and the conversation, the people groan. So we have these three groans and we're always trying to make these groans go away. We're, we're kind of chronic in our condition and that and that chronic condition sort of curls us up and so when the lord comes and heals our groaning it 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 unfurls us it it kind of uncurls us it unwraps us from ourselves it which i think is really nice that we're now that this kind of self-interest is is assaulted okay all right Curved in on self is a great image with a boomerang. Yeah, it's all it's all coming together here. All right, uh, let's see. So, the river which is mentioned made here is the Euphrates. We saw that on the map, dividing Mesopotamia from the land of promise. Of uh, promise, Jacob accordingly reaches the point that he's now crossing the Euphrates, being confirmed in the strong hope that Laban cannot overtake him and his family. But greed is a restless, indefatigable, rapacious and eager monster whoa and it does not allow laban to uh, uh, to rest he can't just let him go no after jacob has crossed the river he travels on to mount gilead again remember so here's the map so here jacob crosses the here's the euphrates river crosses euphrates comes all the way down to gilead and remember this uh business how am i drawing on this I think I'm drawing on the PDF. I'm probably ruining this map. Remember how it's uh, down this side of the river. There's the the four people. There's the G the game. Uh, so you have Gilead, Ammon, Moab, and Edom. This is how I remember. So he comes down to the land of Gilead. Okay. Uh, now, verse 22. When, where'd it go? When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled... He took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. So that it's three days. He's Jacob has a three-day head start. And Laban is going to seven days for a week press after him and finally get when he's down in Gilead, he's going to find him there. But this is amazing. God comes 
to Laban, the Syrian, in a dream by night and says to him, take heed that you say not a word vehemently to Jacob. Let's see how we translate that over here on this side. Uh, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. I think that's actually right. Uh, that's a, that's a probably a closer um, uh, translation, neither good nor evil. Or maybe it might be, speak, be careful that you speak to Jacob from good to evil is the literal translation here. So that you start out by flattering him and then na 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 na, and then all of a sudden you accuse him. <clears throat> in this place, back to Luther over here, in this place, Moses only touches on the pursuit of Laban in passing. He'll deal with it more fully later. Laban is raging and his wrath is seething. And in his heart, he's collecting a mountain of the worst shameful criminal acts of Jacob. Now it is clear, and you 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 know how this starts to happen in the conscience when you're angry at someone, and well, can you we've all experienced you, when you're mad at someone, you start to gather up all the things wrong that they've done to you, and you start to collect this. You become the great accuser, and you're gathering up all the uh, uh, sins that have been committed. He's collecting a mountain of the worst shameful criminal acts of Jacob. Now it's clear, he thinks, what kind of man he, Jacob, is. Now I have caught him and enmeshed in his own crime. This is per it's a perfectly just reason to drag him back with all his goods and his whole family to bind his faithlessness to me. This, look at this. This just reason that, that the, that the uh, hardened conscience and anger is always justifying its own lovelessness. Remember, that's what anger is, justified lovelessness. I have a reason now to drag him back and his whole family and to bind his faithfulness to me with an oath of perpetual slavery. No more of this, your sheep, my sheep, your goats, my goats. No more, no, look, now it's, it's all mine. He's a plunderer, a thief, a kidnapper, a cattle thief, a temple robber, a traitor, and each of these crimes is worthy of eternal imprisonment and torment. So that Laban, you see Laban is chasing after him and he's getting angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier as he goes down. This, thus Laban's rage is burning. He imagines the most right, whoops, he imagines the most righteous reasons uh, for exacting punishment from, oh, where'd you go? Oh, I was in the middle of a dramatic reading and I lost the word exacting punishment from this most outrageous of all scoundrels. He certainly would have raged against the excellent men in most cruel fashion had he been permitted to indulge his fury. But I stated above that Jacob departed by divine inspiration. Now this is key, that God is the one who sent Jacob away. And even, you, we remember, you, we see Jacob's own hesitancy to leave. And a command delivered through an angel. Angels are going to factor in here quite a bit in a bit. Otherwise, it's a matter fraught with peril to run away without taking leave of any of the people in the whole household, in the whole land, even against the will of the father-in-law, to take along daughters, grandsons, the whole flock at which Laban was, Laban as well as his sons used to gaze, gaze greedily. You know, here's Laban. Look at all those flocks. Well, they're Jacob's, but oh, they're mine. I'll change the rules. I'll change it. I do it every year. Give myself a new Christmas present. 
This is a dangerous proposition. Therefore, if God had not hindered these mad attempts, Jacob would have been treated in a shameful manner by these men. In other words, it does not at all seem wise for Jacob to do this. He's outmanned. These factors, then, must be weighed rather carefully so that we may understand with what great rage Laban was inflamed and how greatly he desired to avenge this wrong. For many shameful, and we can see it, we get a hint at it, don't we, in in how far Laban travels to, to exact his revenge and get his stuff back. Many shameful sins are coming together, and we shall hear below how they are exaggerated by Laban in dramatic fashion. Perhaps he would have spared his life, but only for his own gain, that he might have Jacob subject to himself throughout his whole life. In other words, the only thing that Jacob has going for him is that he's valuable to Jacob because he does. he's a great shepherd. He's a great businessman. Now, we know the back story is that this is all a blessing from God, but Laban doesn't think so. So that... Luther figures that the only reason Laban will actually keep Jacob alive is because he wants to make him a slave to make more money. This is what greed does. It sees everybody in terms of, well, this is what selfishness does. Everyone is understood in terms of their helpfulness to me. And that's part of our being turned in on ourselves. We we're thinking a lot about this last Monday in, in this, in when we were talking about Luther's anthropological thesis, how do I think of the other person? And, and remember Psalm 51. Uh, remember Luther's introduction to Psalm 51. I wonder if how hard it would be for me to find that to show you, because I'm not sure we've talked about it lately. Uh, Luther's works, volume 12. I bet you I can find it. Um, so uh, in his introduction to Psalm 51, Luther's talking about this different ways of looking at people. Uh, different ways of seeing the world. And he says that a lot of times our vocations, uh, our vocations shape us in this way for good or evil. Um, I found it here. I'm not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me show you. This is really great. I bet you can't see it. Let me make this bigger. Here. Um, Whoa. Okay. Uh, here it says, Therefore we are not dealing with the philosophical knowledge of man, which defines man as a rational animal and so forth. So a philosopher, how does a philosopher look at humanity? A philosopher sees humanity as a rational animal. That's how we how we think of it. How we how how a philosopher? That's what Aristotle said. A rational animal. That's for science to discuss, not theology. A lawyer speaks of man as an owner and master of property. So when a lawyer looks at a person, he sees him in terms of contracts. He sees him in legal terms. He sees him as an owner of property and so forth. A physician. How does a physician think of a person? Speaks of a man as healthy or sick. So a doctor looks at a person as an as a as a body that has health or is sound or unsound that's healthy or sick. Now so a, how does a philosopher look at a person? How does a doctor look at a person? How does a how does a, a lawyer look at a person? How does a theologian look at a person? But how does it so here and here's where our our own sins start to how, how does a greedy person look at a person? That person is either helpful or hurtful to me. 
They're going to, I, I understand a greedy person, selfish person sees a, sees people as an, as an object either to help or hurt their own happiness and their own greed. Now, how does a theologian, Luther says a theologian discusses man as a sinner. <laughs> In theology, this is the essence of man. Now we have to, that caused quite a controversy later on because we know that man is not sin. That's not the, that's not the, th those are two different things. And we know that because God created man. He didn't create sin. Christ redeemed man. He didn't redeem sin. In Adam and Eve were men. They were not sinners. In the resurrection, we'll be fully human and we won't have sin. But that, but that after the fall now, we, we, the, uh, we are defined by this, by the fall. The theologian is concerned that man become aware of this nature of his corrupted by sins. So that's the language that's, that has to be understood here. Essence is, is are, we're totally corrupted by sins. When this happens, despair follows, casting him into hell, because the, the knowledge of, of man just leads to despair. Uh, in the face of the righteous God, what shall man do who knows that his whole nature has been crushed by sin and that there's nothing left on which he can rely? But his righteousness is reduced to exactly nothing. Amazing. When the mind has felt this much, the other part of this knowledge to follow, it's not a matter of speculation either, but completely of practice and feeling. A man hears and learns what grace and justification are, what God's plan is for the man who has fallen into hell, namely that he has decided to restore the man through Christ. Here the dejected mind cheers up, and on the basis of this teaching of grace, it joyfully declares, though I am a sinner in myself, I am not a sinner in Christ who has been made righteousness for us. Yeah, we have to see um we have to see all of these things that man is a sinner justified by grace. Man is justified by grace. I am righteous and justified through Christ, the righteous and justifier. And he who is called is the justifier because he bring he because he belongs to sinners and was sent for sinners. So this so so our own our own understanding, even of ourselves, now it affects other people. Uh, Lee says the Lutheran Study Bible. Luther says, "In your heart, you have thought up a mass of accusations and charges to vomit out against them. But I order you not only to keep your hands off him, but not to offend him even by a word." Yep, that's coming up. Yeah, the Luther Study Bible. Yeah, picked a good one. Let's see, just one more. Oh, yeah. Lois says, I'm just wondering about the distance. So here, let's just check here. But, oh, boy, I did apparently. So here's 50 miles. That's got to be 50, 100, 200, 300. I'd say 450 miles. That's my guess. If someone wants to Google Haran to Mizpah, and you can see how how long it would take to drive and what the traffic is like. I think it would be difficult to cross a couple of borders over there currently. Now, let's see. Right, where are we? So this is, oh, this is a dangerous thing. So now the, how, how do we think this is a, how do we think of other people? And this is a, uh, 
I, I think this is a very, very important um, theological point. So how do I think of myself? Remember, there's how do I think of God? How do I think of the other? How do I think of myself? How do I think of the of creation? There's these four sort of directions, up, out, in, down, that were in the garden perfect with God and with Adam and Eve and Adam to himself and Adam to all creation. And they're all in the fall, twisted up. So now I run from God. I accuse Eve. I justify myself. I abuse creation. And so all of these are now restored in the work of God. So how do I see the other? I see the other as I see myself, but in, in a key different way. So each person is, number one, created by God. Number two, fallen. Number two, related to Jesus in two very profound ways. That Jesus is the brother of every person by incarnation. He took upon our flesh and blood. And he is their redeemer by his atoning sacrifice for the world, for the world. So Jesus is the brother and the redeemer of every person. Now, they might not know that, which is the tragic thing. This tragic ignorance that most people don't know that they're created by God. They don't know that they're sinful, or at least the profound depths of their sin. They don't know that God is now their brother and savior, and that they will be raised on the last day and judged. So these four things. And can you imagine this, which is in some ways mind-blowing to me, that that you know more about your neighbor, your your unbelieving neighbor, you know more about them than they know about themselves, and especially on important things. You might not know their birthday. You might not even know their name. You might not know their hopes and dreams, which are all things that would be good to know. But you know that they're created in the image of God and that that image was lost in the fall and that Christ still loves them and became their Savior. And that they'll be raised, that their death is not a permanent arrangement, that they'll be raised on the last day and then judged. Hmm. If we, Michelle says, if we forget that we are sinners, we will aim at self-improvement, how people can help us. Instead of aiming at Christ, who would work all these things in us. Right. So that we are not our own ends. We are not our own ends. Our, we have a different we have a different end in mind just love god and neighbor okay now see if we can keep going here because i have a feeling that we have covered little in a lot of time yes i am right so let's uh let's see we we're not quite as far as i was hoping of, but let me just say that we've actually never got as far as i hoped so that's okay no big deal um Let's see. How, this is an outstanding example by which we're taught how God can reach. Uh, oh, uh, uh, perhaps he would have spared his life, but only for his own gain, that he would have Jacob subject to himself throughout his whole life. However, this is an outstanding example by which we are taught how God can restrain the furious assaults of Satan and his members so that they may not rage according to their liking. For God breaks and restrains the angry mood of Laban in such a way that he does not even dare to murmur against Jacob. So, so the Lord is going to step in into the, again, the situation is desperate. 
And the Lord is going to step in via this dream that he gives to Laban and say, here and no further in protection of Jacob. Why does this happen? This is set forth for our consolation, that we may have a sure hope in the goodness and mercy of God, who, Paul says, is faithful and will not suffer us to be tempted above that which we are able to bear, but along with the temptation, give an end so that we're able to bear it. Now, note here that that I think that Luther, um, when Luther uses the word temptation, he's got a more full sense than we do. We think of temptation as that allurement to commit a sin, <clears throat> which I think that's the kind of essence of it. But Luther's going to expand it to all of the afflictions of this life so that Lord, the Lord is going to help us bear up under suffering. God places a limit on temptation so that we're not tempted above our strength or beyond his will and counsel. The devil and Laban had definitely determined that Jacob had merited the death penalty. They would have mitigated the punishment, but only under the condition that he and his whole family would have consigned himself to perpetual servitude. You have two choices, death or being my servant forever. Those are the two options that he's going to give him. This servitude would have been more bitter than death itself. But while they're thinking about overwhelming Jacob, and you think of it, Laban and his and his sons and their soldiers, rah, rah, just 10 days getting angrier and angrier as they go through the woods, ready to get them, God is present and scatters their counsels and cruel attempts. You will by no means do this, Laban, he says, no, not even a harsher, bitter word will you exchange with him. In this way, God, he puts a limit on his Laban's rage. In the same way, God says to Job concerning the billows and storms of the sea, Job 38, I prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come no farther. You shall dash to pieces your proud waves. For the sea swells when it's tossed by winds and storms and by its swirling billows it threatens the, the dike, as it were, or the shore surrounding it, just as though it were about to flow over and out of all the lands on the earth. But I've set a limit for it, says God. So the shore does not fear the threats and the swelling of the sea. So this idea that God is setting a limit to the to the rage of the enemy of the Lord's people. In this way, the devil rises up against the church and hurls dire threats at the godly and stirs up violence and destruction for them. But he who has set a limit for the sea calms also these billows so that Satan cannot rage according to his liking. This reminds me of that beautiful, you know that line in the Be Still My Soul? The winds and waves still know the voice that ruled him while he dwelt below. That's so nice. In this manner, God checks the whole force and fury of Laban's rage by one dream and renders him as quiet as a sheep, no matter how unwilling and how loud he is. For God does not permit those who believe and have his word I better get my pen to draw this one because this is good. God does not permit those who believe and have his word to be afflicted and tempted beyond their strength. Now, it's the Lord who determines what our strength is and what the limits are. We would probably say, well, no, I'm not this strong. Lord, you have a pretty generous view of my strength because I can't endure it anymore. But he knows. <clears throat> he is a faithful guardian of those who guard and keep his word. Jacob had the word. Depart, return to the land of your fathers. 
And likewise, I've seen all that Laban has done for you. This word, uh, he obeys. He takes everything that uh, with him, although he seems to commit very serious sins. Seems, remember, seems. God moves the heart of his wives to follow and obey their husband, and the word, yes, even to urge him to leave. Persecution follows this obedience. Now, this is, I, I don't, I mean, this is, this is just a beautiful promise. Persecution follows this obedience. So when we obey God and his word, the result is affliction. The devil tries to drag him back and to tyrannize him with his whole family. And stands the reason that Jacob with his wives was in great distress, for the thought undoubtedly occurred to Jacob, Behold, Laban is pursuing you with the intention of killing and destroying you and taking away all your goods. How foolish I was to run away and conceal my plans. What reason shall I give to him for my secret departure? It was unwise of me to throw myself and my family into this danger, etc., etc. This is Laban's kind of, I mean, Jacob's timidity here. <clears throat> And look at the temptation that now that Jacob has. This is an, an internal temptation. What, doubts. Why did I do this? I made a huge mistake. He was assailed outwardly. Laban is tracking him down inwardly by thoughts of despair. So outside and inside, this affliction comes. This is this temptation, this tentatio, the, the unfectung that we're talking about. And remember, do you remember this? Remember how uh, um, Luther said that there's three things that make a theologian? We We've had this kind of a bunch but it's it's always very good i think to remember this that the three things that make a theologian are prayer on the one hand and scripture meditation and the third is this tentatio that's the latin tentatio or the on how do you spell it in german Fectung. Anfiktung, what we then sometimes translate as temptation or affliction or suffering. Uh, that's the that's the this thing that makes a theologian. Now remember, remember, in the Middle Ages, they had three things. They had prayer, they had scripture, and then their third thing was oratio, meditatio, and then it was uh Contemplatio. P L A T. Contemplation. So that you're ascending up into heaven where things are all glorious and shiny. And you're escaping the trouble of this world by this contemplation. And Luther says, no, no, it's not contemplatio, it's tantatio. It's not floating up into the heavenly realm. It's being plunged down into this world where things are tough. Persecution follows obedience and this is where the lord is after us and he lets the devil after us and the world after us and our own flesh piles on and so that that the it, it seems like god has abandoned us now he hasn't we know but can you but 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 jacob doesn't know that laban has had a dream that says don't speak evil of him labeled laban doesn't know all of this all late all, all, i mean sorry 
Jacob doesn't know that La that God has given Laban a dream. All that Jacob knows is that there's this big storm cloud behind of the rage of Laban tracking us down to destroy us. And so he's got this internal, he's distraught internally. He's distraught outwardly. All this is falling up. I mean, it looks like he's again in a situation where everything is lost. His wives, as the maidservants, the whole house felt the same temptation. The kids, how much better it would have been, they say, to remain in Mesopotamia than to perish wretchedly here or to be led back into our former servitude is much more severer one. We certainly would have been content with our former condition. Even if we would not have been permitted to abound in wealth, we would nevertheless have enjoyed peace and been without danger. How much does this remind us of, and someone said already, prefigures Pharaoh, uh, this is exactly right. This is like, this is exactly how the people complain in the wilderness because to get from Egypt to the promised land, you've got to go through the wilderness. This is in some ways an archetype of just how the Lord works. There, it says it in, where's this preaching? Is it in the book of Acts? It is necessary to suffer before we enter into glory. And that's not just for Jesus. It is also for us. But Jesus shows it to us most supremely. He suffered and then entered into glory. So it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer before he enters into glory. But it's that same thing happens for us. What is that verse? It's it's in, I think it's in the book of Acts. I'd like to see it. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm reaching for it. It has that idea. But it says, uh, it, without much, it, it, it's through much difficulty we inherit the kingdom or ah pastor Jernander coming to the rescue acts chapter 14 verse 22 let's see if we can find it over here acts mm, look it's already highlighted uh, this is uh, Paul, and at this point, let's see, Barnabas to Derby. So this is Paul and Barnabas. They come back to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. So they, they, they've. This is first missionary journey. They're circling back on those places that they've already established, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Because once they've become Christians, now they're persecuted, and so they have to come back and encourage them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is this the way it works. So for Jacob to get from Padam Haran back to the promised land, it's going to be rah, tough. Such without doubt were the thoughts that entered their minds. Moses, to be sure, did not express the feeling of their hearts because that's just not Moses' style or really the Holy Spirit's style. It's how we get it in the Psalms, that inner life is kind of shown to us in the Psalms. And it's nice that we have it in the Psalms. Oh, Mark says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not in your own understanding, all your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. That's exactly right. So we, hands our, we hand ourselves over to the Lord, and he straightens out our paths. But to us, it might look like a pretty curvy road that he's taken us on. Now, the... Um, mm. The, the 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 it's the nature of the scriptures to not unfold the the sort of emotional state of those who are who are in the scriptures in fact if it wants to get it it'll probably give external things they rent their clothes they put ashes on their head 
They cried out. You know, in other words, the inside is shown from the outside. It's one of the marks of modern literature is that it's obsessed with the kind of inner life, which is fine. You know, it's just the different things that we're interested in. The Psalms being the exceptions, the Psalms are there not only to show us all the shapes of the inner life of our hearts, but also to remind us that these people, the Old Testament, also had all the same feelings, fears and hopes and doubts and dreams that we also have so that we're so that we know that they're real people. They're not as stones or or lifeless characters. So Moses didn't express the feelings of their hearts, but he gave sufficient indication of them because he says that God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream, etc., in the meantime, however, in other words, when God comes to Jacob to Laban in a dream and says, do not speak harshly about Jacob, that indicates that Laban's exact intent was to bring accusations against Jacob of his crimes and theft and so forth. So we know what Laban was thinking, and we know then what Jacob must have been afraid of. However, Jacob supported himself by the promises given to him by God, namely that he, Jacob, had departed by God's command. And by the same promises, he encouraged his household and wives because God appeared to him in Bethel and said, return to the land of your birth. Because the uh, promise, promise, return to the land of your birth. Hold on, my dear wives and children. God will not detest us or cast us off, he said. I don't know why it says Bethel here. Here's, I'm just sorry that I paused there because remember Bethel was where he had the the... He had the dream of the ladder. Was there something in that promise that he would come back to the land? That's probably what it's referring to, and I've forgotten about. Okay. In this way, now, oh, so notice, what does Jacob do in the midst of the, all of these afflictions? And hear how he, he is our example. He goes back to the promises of God. What promises do I have? <clears throat> this, is our, this, is, this is how our prayers are shaped and this is how our lives are shaped always looking for the promises of god and setting the promises of god against the afflictions of our lives this is the way that we struggle and overcome temptation by faith this is a contest of faith now notice and we'll probably have to maybe we'll finish here in this section where luther's going to kind of lean into what this means because sometimes in this life we have a contest of love we're called to do something and it's hard to do and we have to, but we have to do it. <clears throat> that's, that's that. Those are often difficult, but the real difficult work is not this contest of love, but the contest of faith. When affliction comes upon us and doubt and fear. Look at how Luther describes it like this. In the time of peace, when he's free of temptation, he does good works. But in the hour of temptation, so this is the contrast, the time of peace versus the time of temptation, then what do you do? He cries out, yes, he roars with a loud cry, so that all the angels can clearly hear him. He's brought down to hell and undergoes the perils of death. This is what sometimes the old theologians called the dark night of the soul. It is the it is the groaning of the conscience. Jacob supported himself by the promises in the midst of this. It says in the comments, that's exactly right, both family. 
he's struggling and shouting and by this shouting both heaven and earth are taken by storm so that so that jacob knows that his battle is not against laban he's crying out to god therefore god comes in dreams by night to laban as he's considering most cruel plans in his hearts and he puts an end to the persecution then and god does it single-handedly jacob doesn't doesn't have to do anything to defend himself against laban the lord takes care of it I don't know how many times in my own life I just see like I'm working on something and doing something and I'm trying to change something or fix something or make something happen or whatever. And I just can't finally I get I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to change that person's mind. I don't know how to change that person's heart. I don't know how to fix that thing. And so you have to actually give up trying in some ways you give up working. And finally, that means you're praying, Lord, if it's going to get fixed, you're going to have to do it. And then it gets fixed. The Lord takes care of it single-handedly because it's sometimes the Lord wants to remind us that he doesn't need our help. We always say, Lord, I'm, I'm working on this thing. If you could help me, that'd be great. And the Lord sometimes says, okay. And then sometimes we say, Lord, I don't know how to do this. If you do it, I'll help you. And he says, okay. And then sometimes we see a problem. We're like, Lord, I want to help. And he says, no, it's above your pay grade. You just... Be still, and I'll take care of it, and I will be exalted among the nations. That, in other words, I don't want, I don't want you to be a co-author on this story here. I'm gonna, I'm the gonna be the one. So he, so he fixes the whole problem by coming to Laban in a dream. Those threatening billows and furious storms in Laban's heart are calmed, for he said to him in a dream, I see that you're raging and burning with wrath, and all your endeavors and thoughts are intent on this, that you may do violence to Jacob. You think that you have perfectly just reason, remember, the, the self-justifying ways of the sinful heart, to persecute and tyrannize him? For in your judgment, Jacob's the worst scoundrel alive. In, in your heart, you've thought up all, a huge mass of accusations and charges to vomit out against him. But I order you not only to uh not only to keep your hands off him, but not to offend him even by a word. There's our Lutheran study Bible quote. Thus God does not forsake believers, especially when they cry to him in true faith. We too have very often experienced the wonderful goodness of God and his protection. How many and cruel counsels of kings, popes, and cardinals have been wondrously restrained, not by our strength or counsel, but by God's might. For he has smitten them with terror so that they would not dare to do anything, or if they had dared to do something, he had thrown their counsels and endeavors into disorder. So God rescues us. I have someone asking, is this the boomerang paradox? I think so. We're looking for a way out, and the way out is to stop. The way to fix the problem is to stop trying to fix the problem. Exactly right. All right, that's a good spot to stop. So, ooh, whoa, it's a very good spot. We went a little long. So let's say a prayer, and then I'll stop this recording, and then we'll jump on. And I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the whole thing. Oratio tentatio, meditatio, the boomerang paradox, the um, the example of the Lord rescuing etc etc let's pray well lord we give you thanks that in the example of jacob's faith you give us great consolation that you never uh, forsake your believers especially when we cry to you in true faith so give us by the word and spirit this faith to cry out to you to look to you 
for all good, especially in times of trouble and affliction. For we ask all this through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Bless we the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.